Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. Welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, um, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and as always, joining me are my two co-hosts. Aaron, say hi. Yeah, hi. Hi, good. <laughs> Drew, say hi. Hello. Right. Obviously, you're both stunned by our brand new uh, introduction music and hopefully yeah. the rest of our little stings that we've put throughout the episode uh, will be our new ones as well. <laughs> the, the door needs a bit of uh, oil. Your hinges need some oil. We, well, I, I had to find a specifically very, very creaky door just to get that no, nice sound. Effect, it so. is an old cupboard. Speaking <laughs> of creaky doors, I do have a, a quick bit of housekeeping. Go on um, then. Firstly, uh, I apologise to my good co-hosts and to our listeners because when I listened back to our podcast last week, I didn't confuse the word fish with isopod once. I actually did it, I think, like three times. <laughs> did you? <laughs> <laughs> I kept calling the uh, cyberphoa a fish. It is an isopod. I do apologise. Don't at me. We'll let you off. Don't at you. Um, the second thing uh, I'd like to... Uh, address is the polls the results of the polls ah. um, we now know from our millions of listeners <laughs> all, all three of them all three of them uh, only one of which voted in both polls uh, but we... <laughs> I'd, just like, I'd just like to say hi to uh, Aaron's mum who's clearly <laughs> the one who's done that no? no, no I, think I don't it's... think my mum's on Twitter uh. <laughs> but anyway, the results of the polls, Megalodon has beaten out the bullet ant by one vote. It was well, we close. were wrong. We were wrong. It was one to nil. Wow, really? No, we all said that the Megalodon would win. Oh, yeah, we did. Well, Sorry. Yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> Good to know. And uh, also, I'm afraid uh, I lost my um, my own self-challenge last week when I tried to outgrow Scarif because it would seem that one person... <laughs> would prefer to have a cymophoa cut off their tongue rather than kangaroo eating their corpse. Are we going to carry through with this threat? We're going to find that person and cut their tongue off and <laughs> we, put one of these on. We hunt you down. We have a very specific set of skills. Well, none of them involve doing that. But... No. Uh, and lastly, last bit, is a little bit of homework for Drew. Um, someone got in contact with me. They wanted to remain anon anonymous. But someone got in contact with me and asked me to ask you, Drew... Mm. Your homework yep. for next week is to be able to tell us how many Cymophoa would make a Gigantopithecus. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. No, that's fine. I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. That's a reference to last week where, where Drew told us that there's 700 and something sparrows would create a Gigantopithecus. I can't remember. Yeah, we're like 720 that. something, I think. I'll write that down. Thank you. Oh, fair enough. Well, we'll go from uh, from our... Well, we'll, yeah, we'll, go, we'll try that again. We'll go into our first uh, article for today, which is going to be the news. So let's play our brand new news introduction. It's the news! So this week, we've got uh, an article from myself uh, and an article from Aaron. Aaron, your one, I believe, is about a dinosaur. Take it away. It is. And uh, it's actually quite an exciting one. Um, 
as all dinosaurs are. Well, I mean, it's quite an ex- exciting find. Uh, so, an oviraptor has been uh, discovered sitting on eggs in a nest in what is being hailed as a world first. Um, now, to set the scene, oviraptorsaurs <laughs> are a group of manoraptoran theropod dinosaurs. They're popularly thought of as egg thieves. Even the name of a raptor means egg thief. Hailing from the Cretaceous period in an area that is now known as Asia and North America, uh, though there are also fossil evidence in what is now known as Australian South America, you're going to have to imagine a dinosaur with um, basically a short beaked parrot-like skull, few to no teeth in them. Some of them did have a couple of teeth. In, in fact, I believe a few species had like a buck tooth kind of appearance, but most of them had, had no teeth. Uh, some had a bony crest on their head, um, not too dissimilar to to a few other famous uh, dinosaurs, actually. And they w- had feathered bodies. Um, these animals ranged in size from roughly the size of a turkey to around eight metres and 1.4 tonnes in the case of uh, Gigantoraptor. Um, they most sit around the two meter mark. Their arms and hands are long and probably very strong, and their short tails have kind of inspired debates over whether or not other raptorsaurs uh, had pigger style tails, so like the um, the uh, Ambopteryx longibrachium that we uh, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. So that's mm. what you're kind of looking at. Um, Covered in feathers as well. I did say feathered bodies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. covered in feathers, uh, which will come into uh, will come quite important in a, in a bit. Um, in, in fact, speaking of feathers, uh, um, analysis have kind of suggested that these guys are actually representative of primitive flightless birds, uh, and some people even consider them to to be true birds, along with some dinonychosaurs, uh, and in fact more advanced than Archaeopteryx. But as kind of suggested by the name um, of a raptor, uh, the most famous fossil provoked the thought that these were egg eaters. But in reality, not much of their diet is known. Um, And further evidence has kind of suggested that this concept of uh, stealing and eating eggs is is false. Anyway, this new fossil was found in a 70 million year old rock formation in uh, Guangzhou uh, city, China. It clearly shows another raptor of saw uh, sitting on eggs. Um, it also shows the eggs being covered by the body in such a way to suggest that the arms, with their accompanying feathers, would be covering the eggs completely, uh, so protecting them from elements or perhaps even protecting them from detection by predators. Um, but most importantly, and the reason why this is a world a world first is that it shows fossilized embryos free in fact and mm. uh, like i say this is the combination that's so important the fact that it's a non-avian dinosaur it's on its nest uh covering eggs where embryos are present um no embryos have ever been found inside fossilized eggs but all in all this fossil shows has about 24 they they think there's at least 24 eggs are present um, at least seven of these show bones of partial embryos. And as I said, three of them are incredibly visible. The adult specimen displays forearms and pelvis and hind limbs and, and a partial tail. And the late development stage of the embryos 
coupled with the proximity of the adult suggests that the adult actually died incubating the future hatchlings as opposed to laying or, or guarding them. The embryos uh, were pretty much ready to hatch, so the adult had been tending to them for some time successfully, uh, which I think is quite cute. And it also kind of speaks to a question that um, Kerry asked during episode two about the parental instincts of dinosaurs. But yeah, that's, um, that's why it's important, because this fossil clearly shows a clutch of eggs in a nest being looked after, cared for by a parent and has fossilized embryos. But there is one more gift that this fossil had to give. Uh, now, if you remember, at the start of my description, I said that the true diet of the, this group of dinosaurs, we don't confidently know what it is 100%. This fossil had gastroliths in it. Um, so if you recall, again, going back to uh, our, our um, focus on Ambopteryx longibrachium, we spoke about how these stones are deliberately swallowed to ease with the digestion uh, process and grinding up food and this actually supports the idea that oviraptorosaurs are herbivorous so all in all it's a fantastic fossil um it's very interesting and the amount of information that has been kind of collected uh from it is just um astronomically important mm. oh. i've got to admit they're one of those groups of dinosaurs that was always they always stood out when whenever you looked in dinosaur books as a kid um and this sort of first discovery by uh i can't remember his name <laughs> the uh, paleontologist who went to the flaming cliffs of mongolia who discovered protoceratops and velociraptor they also discovered the the um oviraptors at that point and that's where they ended up basically giving them that name because they found ones near uh nests so they assumed they were roaming around stealing the eggs of everything else which it's it's a bit of a bit of a weak connection. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, it is a bit of a jump. Yeah, because you would, and I've said this to you guys before. You would, I don't know why you would come to that conclusion because generally, if a, if an animal has died and been fossilized near eggs, presumably it's probably more likely that they were its own. Yeah, yeah. is it not yeah. a case of agenda though? Is it a, a, an agenda? Because oh, against every raptors. <laughs> we're still, we're still well. The not, anti-over-raptor not so agenda. More like, <laughs> more like, we, like, you see it in mo- modern day in, in research with wolves. You see it. Like, you have an idea about wolves and you form that idea. And you, some people, some people forgot the memo that science evolves with time. And so they get this, uh, what's the word? It's, um, well, they get this kind of imbalanced uh, attachment to their theory or to what they found and then um and it's very hard to shake that that belief then um you get it with with, like you get it a lot with 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 wolves the reason why wolves come to my head is because of how many subspecies there apparently are and how the lines between each subspecies are suspiciously straight but uh but we've always had for a long time, at least, we've had this idea, not only that reptiles, sorry, reptiles, dinosaurs are these big lumbering lizard-like reptiles, which we're now trying to break down because we now know that they're the, the birds are dinosaurs and we know the, the path of evolution and stuff. 
but we also consider them to be cold, and not just cold blooded, but uh-huh. cold hearted and 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 uh, monstrous. Uh, and that is obviously not the case. And it's uh, it's something that's found its way into popular culture uh, in the Lost World Jurassic Park. That's one of the main things that they talk about is whether or not the T Rexes had parental instincts. Um, and now we're seeing it here with with fossils like that are showing almost almost certainly. I would say they had. Um, it's almost parental. the agenda yeah. is yeah. to assume that these animals are cold because we don't want to. Yeah, it's almost like you don't want to see parts of yourself in the animals. Yeah, you want um, to create a monster, mammal good, everything else Roy... cold and yeah. bad. Roy Chapman Andrews, that was the name. I, I am oh, really cold right now. <laughs> Just very quickly looked that up. Yeah, well, there we go. We go from uh, an exquisite um, fossil find to. What I would say is probably going to be an amazing find um, of the living variety, this one. Coming all the way from Ireland, I've got some walrus news this week. Awesome. Some absolutely amazing animals, walruses. Predicted. But not generally... Predicted as well. By you. Sorry? Predicted. Oh, well, well I mean, no, yeah. no, you didn't predict it. You, you wanted it. I didn't you predict fa- it. You fantasised about I, it. I, I, yeah, I thought about it. We need some more walrus news and uh, we got some more walrus news. Mm. So they're not generally known for living in Ireland, but one particularly lost walrus has turned up uh, off the coast of Kerry Island uh, in the very southwest of Ireland. So it's a very, very long way from home. And the article I've got comes from the the Irish Examiner uh, newspaper, and um, it's about a local man uh, named Alan Houlihan, uh, which I love that last name. That's hilarious. Houlihan, I like it, rolls off the tongue. Uh, and his five-year-old daughter, um, Miriam, uh, they spotted, well, this this cow-sized walrus lying there on the rocks as they were going for a, a walk along uh, Glenleam Beach uh, on Kerry Island. And um, as you could probably imagine, it stands out quite obviously because this thing is literally the size of a cow. Um, which is a lot bigger than the uh, the seals that you would normally get. We get common and grey seals off the coast uh, of the UK and Ireland. We don't get anything much bigger than that unless it's a whale. Uh, and if you saw a whale on the rocks, you probably would, well, you, you're probably not going to have the same reaction. But walruses are quite large animals. They're, they're sort of a pinky red colour when they're sort of out of the water and dried off. And working it out, I actually had to... The article didn't give a very good description as to how far this walrus must have come from uh, the Arctic Circle. So by doing a bit of um, working it out on some online calculators, uh, it's come over 2,704 kilometres, this walrus. And the thought is that it's not swum that distance. So they saw this, um, this walrus. They sent various pictures to, to people. Uh, and a marine biologist, Kevin Flannery, believes that the uh, the Arctic creature could have fallen asleep on an iceberg before being carried across the Atlantic uh, to uh, to Kerry Island, which in itself is hilarious, because you know if you've ever if you've ever gone to sleep on a bus accidentally and woken up somewhere a couple of stops away from where you're meant to be, that's that's got to be scary enough. If you've ever woke uh, fallen asleep on an iceberg and woken up on a different part of the planet, that's got to be terrifying. Gary, um, I I once went to uh, I caught the train from uh, visiting Twycross Zoo, and I accidentally <laughs> fell asleep and ended up in Glasgow. 
that's quite a distance. <laughs> that well, is quite a way. We have uh, speaking from experience. Then, how would that walrus be feeling? How did you feel, Aaron? I'm how very did you feel? When I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> we can only assume that that walrus is feeling the same. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. So the director of Dingle Ocean World. Uh, Kevin Flannery, who's also a marine biologist, uh, said it's an amazing site uh, and it's the first confirmed sighting of a walrus in Ireland. Uh, and as far as he knows, it's a one off, which, you know, I don't imagine we get too many of them anywhere near the UK uh, and Ireland. So he, he reckons uh, that he said what happened is it's fell, uh, fallen asleep on an iceberg, drifted off and has gone too far out to the middle of the Atlantic or somewhere like that off Greenland, possibly. Uh, this is usually what happens to them if they fall asleep on an iceberg and get carried off from the Arctic Circle. So according to him, it, it does happen more often than not. I couldn't find any particular cases of this happening I in the UK or anywhere, but it time, does happen in Canada. Uh, and uh, I... Can, I can I quickly, uh, yep. quickly ask, how, how far away was uh, it again? A distance of over 2,704 kilometres. <laughs> right. And how long did it sleep for? <laughs> well, I want to find the velocity, the speed well, of this iceberg. That's yeah. Um, you you gotta you gotta think it's probably been asleep for the initial bit. It's woken up, you know, somewhere Come. where it can't see the land. Somewhere in the so, yeah, oh, in the middle of the ocean. What am I gonna do now? Just uh, carry on. Yeah, commit, might as well just, go to sleep yeah, again. Commit to your <laughs> To be honest, some of the ocean currents in the Atlantic are quite fast moving. Uh, especially off the west coast uh, of Ireland, which is where we get the um, mid-Atlantic current, which brings all of the, the warm water up from the uh, the tropics and then dumps everything back down towards the east coast of America. So there is very much a chance that it's picked up by some sort of ocean current. There's nothing written, however, about what the plan is for this walrus, because uh, it is very far from home. They eat mussels and clams naturally in the wild. So we're looking at an animal that it's got its diet around there, but it is an Arctic animal. So as the summer sorts of, uh, as the summer uh, and spring start to, uh, to come close, we're going to start seeing this animal being a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, what the, uh, the article and what I could glean from other bits uh, said is that they're just going to basically leave it alone, keep an eye on it. And if it starts to have issues, they're going to look at trying to work uh, to do something about it but I, I i'd be intrigued to see what happens to this walrus if he decides to set up home mm. in ireland and uh and live there and the entire irish population of walruses being one, one. um or it yeah. could be it could be a trend that the walruses are all coming and soon well i, I was gonna say if they if they if they send it if they send it back i'm not gonna say from, from where i came from <laughs> if, if they send it if they sent it back it might tell the other walruses about the glorious Emerald Isle, with a, an, and, an Irish and they might, and we'll have, yeah, we might have a load of walruses on their two hundred kilometer an hour <laughs> moving <laughs> icebergs. So I mean, that's the thing is, you're going to have to watch out now if you're on the the west coast of Ireland. Watch out for walruses as they uh, they try and invade. I did do, <laughs> yeah. I did a little bit of digging, Gareth, uh, for, yep. your, for your interest uh, mainly, but uh, I think we'd all find this interesting. So. This is the first site in in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, there there has only been three confirmed sightings in the UK since 1999. Ah. There have been 11 recorded sightings since 1897, 
although the Natural History Museum would suggest around 20 over the course of several centuries. But that's presumably all the data that we have since their extinction in UK waters, which I think is about 3,000 years ago. Yeah, um, it's, it's not within, I would say, living memory. No. There. Do you think no. that this will become more or less frequent as we move forward? I don't think so, no. I think this is a, this is a one-off that happens every now and again when you get a really lost walrus. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're seeing, obviously, migrations of animals coming north yeah. because, it's, because it's getting warmer. Yeah, I don't think we're seeing very many of the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> the ones wanting it colder coming no. south. No, they're just fed up of all that snow and ice up in the Arctic and, you know. Yeah. Did you, did you it, to prepare myself for, for hearing about your article, Gareth, I did, like I say, I did a bit of digging. I found a fantastic, uh, I think it was on HuffPost, a fantastic impersonation done by one Anthony Fitzgerald, who was interviewed by a news station, and he did a walrus sound. Um, did, you, did, did you hear <laughs> Okay. That? No, I haven't. No. Check it out. If, and anyone listening, go, go on uh, YouTube or, or well, I'm sure uh, Google if we link that, and find we'll it. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah we can link that. On yeah. Twitter. Well... That's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to listen to that in a minute and uh, and find out what's going on with that. But um, well, there you go. There's our walrus news. Um, hopefully, I can bring you more walrus news every week. They're an animal that I'm always happy to talk about. Uh, so we'll go from our news uh, new segment now, uh, and we'll go into our creature feature. It's the creature feature. Okay. Well, welcome along to this week's creature feature. Uh, this week, Drew is going to take us through one of the, uh, the bird world's, well, un, unsung heroes, the vultures. Drew, take it away. Yeah, this week I wanted to shine a well-deserved spotlight on vultures as they are critically important for us and the environment. Um, and I think they're criminally misunderstood. So I'm not restricting myself to just one species of vulture here. I'm mainly talking about old world vultures. Um, so just to be clear, that's vultures in... Europe, Africa, and Asia. Uh, there are 16 species of old world vulture, and there are uh, seven species of new world vulture, so 23 in total. Uh, but old world vultures and new world vultures are not in the same family, so they're not that closely related. Um, old world vultures are in the family Accipitridae, or Accipitridae uh, which also include hawks, kites, and eagles, so most of what we call birds of prey. Um, but Accipitridae doesn't include falcons or owls, which are in their own families. Um, and new world vultures are in the family Cathartidae, uh, so two separate families. We give the common name vulture to indiv individual species of both families because they look alike and they perform the same job. Uh, this is a result of convergent evolution, which basically means they evolved separately, but they look similar and have similar traits because they've adapted to the same ecological niche. The main difference between their adaptations is that old world vultures rely mainly on their vision. New world vultures rely on their sense of smell. So what is that job or that niche that vultures perform and why are they so important? Uh, so they are scavengers, undertakers, if you like, and they are absolutely perfect at it. And I'm just going to go through a few adaptations that they have that, uh, as, as to why the reasons why they're so good at it. So to be a good scavenger, you need excellent eyesight to find your food. Uh, and being up high gives you a good vantage point as well. Vultures obviously fly, and they do have really good eyesight. Uh, and they've got very wide, broad wings to ride thermals up into the sky. So this allows them to stay airborne for hours with minimal effort. 
so they can find food really, really quickly and really easily. Um, it's a myth that they circle dying animals. They are simply just riding thermals and looking about. That's all they're doing. And they only move in on an animal that's already dead. Uh, in fact, they usually wait for the decay to set in as it gives them easy access to animals with tough skins. Um, as a scavenger, you're, of course, doing a dirty job. So you want to stay nice and clean. Uh, so to help with this, vultures have no feathers on their heads, uh, apart from llama guys. Uh, but we've talked a little bit about those bearded vultures. Mm. Uh, they don't eat carcasses, they eat bone. Um, so they don't stick their heads into carcasses. But because they haven't got feathers on their on their heads, their heads stay pretty clean. Um, and they will actively clean their feathers after a meal as well. They are quite meticulous. They are very, very clean. Uh, so them being dirty animals is a complete myth. Uh, if they get dirty, they get sick. Finally, being a scavenger means you also have to deal with competition. So vultures are generally solitary, uh, but they have, do have big brains and they can effectively organize themselves when they feed so that a brawl doesn't break out. Uh, because obviously there's a big risk of that happening. Uh, so their hierarchies do transcend multiple vulture species uh, at a feast. So this allows them to effectively strip a single carcass in a few hours, uh, with each species utilizing their own strong beaks to tear away different parts of the carcass so they can clear it all out between them. Um, so there are lots of other different interesting facts about vultures as well. Uh, they vomit to lighten their load when they to fly away quicker if they need to. Uh, they uh, urinate on their legs to keep themselves cool. Um, they walk like John Wayne as well, which is also cool. Uh, but we've only got we've only got a limited time, so I want to focus really on their job and what they do for us. So as I said, they are nature's undertakers. Uh, they clean up the rotten meat. Uh, it's not a glamorous job, but that's the job that needs doing, and they excel at it. Um, and I think they are very short on respect for this significant job that they do do. So if you asked a number of people on the street what they thought of vultures, they would say. They're gross, they're ugly, hideous, nasty. They associate them with bad luck. Um, and some people think they're scary as well. And this absolute slander is why we need to talk about vultures <laughs> because this negative reputation is really damaging to their image and thus their conservation too. So I mentioned before that there are 16 species of old world vulture. 11 of those are at risk of extinction within our lifetime. Eight are categorized as critically endangered and three are endangered. So I'll just quickly mention that most new world vultures are listed as least concerned. So they're not facing as much of a problem as mm. old world vultures are. Um, so, yeah, they're not facing the same catastrophe that we're seeing with old world vultures, um, which is why I really want to talk mainly about the latter. Uh, the exception to this are the condors, California and Andean condors that have been heavily persecuted and their low clutch size. So the one egg per nest has made their recovery quite difficult. Uh, but yeah, back onto old world vultures. In the 1990s, 99% of the Indian subcontinent's vultures were wiped out by the use of the veterinary drug uh, diclofenac. Uh, it was given to diseased or injured cattle as an anti-inflammatory, usually without a diagnosis and rarely resulted in a cure. So the animals died anyway. Uh, so vultures fed on the carcass and the drug was lethal to them. It caused acute kidney failure, so they died. Um, and yeah, this wiped out 99% of the, uh, the subcontinent's vultures. Can I just so the man there for a second, Drew? Of course, one yeah. Of, one of the other random things, I don't know whether you, is um, mm -hmm. diclofenac also causes uh, thin eggshells as well. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did notice that. Down which like, uh, I forgot to write that down. But yeah. Clutch failures as well, which is a double-edged double sword. You end up with, well, animals dying of kidney failure and clutches dying because they just can't come to term. Yeah. Sorry, I'll just yes. uh, I'll jump back. No, no, no. But yeah. no, if you if you have any any pointers, <laughs> feel free to chuck them in. 
Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a double whammy. Um, so the manufacturing of the drug in India, Pakistan and Nepal is now banned. So that's really good. That's a, that's a victory. Uh, but obviously a lot of damage has already been done. Um, unfortunately, the retail sale of the drugs does remain legal as well. So it's still sort of in circulation, although obviously not quite as heavily used. That's a problem in Europe as well, is we're seeing more use of this drug, uh, which is odd because we would think that we should learn from it. So hopefully people will start to get on board with that and stop using it. Um, there are alternatives uh, that, are, that are safer. So moving on to vultures in Africa, and I will go back onto the ones in India in a bit, uh, but moving on to vultures in Africa, in the last 30 years, their populations have collapsed too. Um, poisoning is the, is the biggest threat, uh, which is mostly deliberate. So the reason it's deliberate is poachers will often lace the bodies of animals they kill with poison. Say if they shot an elephant or a rhino for its respective ivory or horn. And because vultures will descend on the carcass, revealing its position to the rangers, the poachers don't want that trail. So they, to cut off that trail, they lace the, the, uh, the bodies with poison. So it ends up killing one elephant, one dead elephant may end up killing a good 100, 200 vultures. May so I ask why... a question? Yes. Well, you can try. <laughs> um, yeah. is, that, is the poison that kills the elephant that then kills the scavengers feeding on the elephant? What about the scavengers... That, that would feed on the carcass of the vultures and so on and so forth. How far down the food chain does that poison, is that poison able to reach? I'm not 100% sure, but I would assume that it would still keep passing on if things still kept eating mm. them. So you eventually That's you just end up with assumption. a... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, but yeah, basically, if they do eat the vultures, then in theory, they themselves would also be poisoned too. So and it would just keep going through the food chain. Yeah. So... Why should we care that this is happening? Well, obviously, you know, the first reason is we should care because we should, because it is awful. But also we should care because not caring and not appreciation vultures is part of the problem. And if you're listening to this and you still need another reason to get on board, well, I've got another one for you. Uh, so this goes on to how it affects us directly, uh, vulture persecution. Um, as a result, going back to the Indian vultures, uh, as a result of the decline of Indian vultures, the feral dog population in India has increased by about 35% uh, because there's lots of carrion for them to eat. Feral dogs are poor substitutes for vultures because they carry and spread disease, whereas the birds don't. They nullify disease within their gut. Not poisons, though, obviously. Uh, they're not nuclear. <laughs> they can't, yeah, just absolutely nullify absolutely everything. So rabies and tuberculosis is very common amongst feral dogs. Um, which they pass on to humans and around 20,000 people in India die from rabies per year. Uh, the rabies infection rate and thus the death rate from it has increased with the decline of vultures. There's a, there's a direct link there. There's a correlation. So vulture stomach acid has a pH of one, which means it's exceptionally corrosive That's and it allows really them to see. It's really high. Um, more than the Coke you drink. Don't I think, drink it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it allows them to safely digest putrid rotten meat and bone, even if it's infected with botu botulinum toxin, uh, cholera bacteria, and also anthrax as well. So they can destroy anthrax in their gut. Um, and they cannot catch rabies because that's a mammalian disease. So without vultures nullifying these toxins and bacteria, they will spread. So we can't do without them and we cannot replace them as we've seen with the feral dogs in India. They're not a replacement. So to finish, the point I've hopefully really rammed home is that vultures are incredibly important. And in order for them to recover, we need to rethink how we perceive them. Uh, we need to start loving the unloved. 
thankfully people are waking up and taking positive action to save them. And there are many charities and projects out there that you can support. Uh, BirdLife International is a, is a fantastic organization and you can check their website out for lots of really good, uh, really good information about how you can help vultures. Also, if you're in the UK, uh, I'm going to shout out a, uh, it's not a sponsored, uh, not a sponsored podcast, <laughs> but I'm going to shout out to the Hawk Conservancy Trust in Andover. Um, they're incredible and they'll, they'll give you far more information than I can ever give you about uh, vultures. But yeah, uh, so please give these organizations your support. Please give vultures your support. Uh, we cannot conserve only the animals we consider cute and fluffy. So bugger your prejudices against these <laughs> high-flying heroes of mass sanitation. Uh, they are great. We need them. And now they very much need us. That's quite true. I've got one thing to add to the um, the Indian thing as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, the one of the side effects, other than rabies being spread to people um, because of the increased dog population, is oh, it's it's actually brought, yes, it's actually brought yeah. leopards into um, into human areas because they have a particular taste for dogs, uh-huh. which has meant that there's been increased attacks of people by yeah. leopards, which means leopards then get persecuted as well, all because well, people are pumping drugs into cattle, which unfortunately is more to do with the the religion in india of not wanting to harm a cow which obviously means that there's a lot of cultural aspects that people have got to take into account but hopefully those yes. sort of practices wanna... of treating the cattle can change yeah like i said there are alternatives uh, i forgot mm. to write down the alternative uh <laughs> yes yeah, so there are alter- there are alternative drugs that you can use um that mm. won't kill vultures do you know that that actual effect that it's had the vulture to the dog to the leopard to the leopard attacking people mm. it's actually led to leopards in in the indian subcontinent leopards have been going through trash as well much like the urban fox in oh, God. and yeah, to the yeah. point that the the leopard is is labeled as a pest species so when yeah, you usually I mean... think of pest species you think of things like rats or or raccoons or something like that in this case it's it's an endangered species has been labeled as a pest or because we can't tolerate vultures yeah yeah uh, i mean that's that's a really good example of just how extreme it's got really it's not what you want to see when you put the bins out overnight the leopard how everything in an ecosystem included in ourselves every single species on this planet has a niche it has a place uh, and a reason to be and as soon as you start knocking the, the columns that hold our existence up Everything starts to crumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There's a depressing. <laughs> well, yeah, there are there are uh, there are lots of charities out there that are helping vultures. So I don't want to end it on a completely negative note. But you know, ultimately, we need to change our opinions about them, or uh, so that their reputation can improve, so that this these charities can start being funded properly. Well, to end it on a on a happy note, Drew, what is your mm. favourite species of vulture? My favourite species of vulture is a vulture I worked with down in, uh, I don't want to sound, you know, too, too much like a white person, but down, <laughs> in South, down in South Africa when I worked down there for a little bit. Um, I worked with a vulture called Julius. He was a Cape, uh, is it just Cape vulture or Cape Griffin vulture? I can't remember if there's a griffin in there as well. Um, but he was great. He was, they're, they're one of the larger ones. They look similar to griffin vultures. Uh, so those are almost like your... I suppose if you're your basic vulture shape, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but yeah, I I really liked him, and thus I had a, a pretty big admiration for Vultures after uh, after working with that sassy boy. <laughs> They're pretty big, those ones as well, aren't they? Yeah, he was a uh, he was big. Mm. He was big. Aaron, what's your favourite vulture? Oh, Griffin vulture. It is a Griffin vulture. I just double checked. Sorry, <laughs> it's a it's a Cape, it's both Cape Griffin and a Cape Griffin vulture. Griffin vulture. Yeah. Uh, if again to to repeat the uh, what Drew said, um, we're not uh, we're not sponsored, but. There is a place I'd mm. like to shout out, and it's called Sim Sim de la Aegis. I think I've pronounced that poorly, uh, but it's in the Catalan mountains. It's the Centre for Eagles, is what it's called, uh, and they are a fantastic little uh, captive collection of all rescued uh, birds. Some, if not most, they are working towards basically they rehab them and they try and reintroduce them into the wild but those that they can't they use much like SeaWorld but with birds I guess and on a much much smaller and more rustic scale uh, less water as less well water, yeah. um, less, yeah. so they rescue <laughs> they rehabilitate and then the majority of them the ones that they can do they are reintroduced back into the wild but the ones that stay behind they act as like ambassadors ambassadors for their for their species and for birds in general uh, not mm. only is this center absolutely amazing i can't understate how good it is but the education there is amazing the display that they do um with the birds is done on a kind of flattened out they kind of quarried back part of the mountain top so you sit kind of in in on top of the mountain and it's a flat little platform and they basically fly these birds off the edge of the mountain. You get to see them probably closer closer to how they behave in, in the wild than you see in any other captive setting. Um, and you'll see mm. these big uh, vultures and eagles and buzzards and all sorts flying off over the mountains, enjoying the thermals, and they can go as far as they want and come back. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah, my favourite is griffin vulture. The first time I ever saw one was at this centre. And I was just taken aback by the sheer size of the thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think they're beautiful. I think they're stunning. Yeah. I, think they're I think they're. I think they're impressive. Really, really impressive. I think most. Well, I'm going to. What about up, you, Gareth? I'm going to stand up for the new world vultures here. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. There's been two that have that have always yes. stuck in my mind. Two that I've worked with. One was a king vulture who was very, very uh, nice to uh, to be around, and they're one of the the prettiest looking vultures, color wise, but. Probably the one that I spent the most time with was uh, an Andean condor. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, from a chick as well, and he he was bigger than most birds are fully grown That's really as amazing, a chick, man. and they are yeah, is, yeah. absolutely stunning really birds. But um, the only ones I've ever seen in the wild have been griffin and um, the the lammergeier, but from a distance, so far in the distance that just because they're big enough birds. You can just about see them with a good pair of binoculars. Yeah, but, yeah. Drew, I've got a couple. They of are incredible them, birds. Yeah, I, I have a couple of questions. What did you say, Aaron? I say I have a couple of questions, <laughs> if I may. Uh, two are relatively serious, yep. but one is just to <laughs> entertain myself because I like breaking certain groups of people's hearts. Um, yep. So the first thing, and I think this is a, I can't understate how important I think this question is, uh, because I know the answer. We both. We all know the answer, and you've already kind of touched upon it, but I really want to underline it because there are a faction of people who will not get this. Uh, so uh-huh. I think it's worth actually making it clear. 
are they a danger to domestics? Uh, so, um, yeah, so I mentioned before that they don't circle dying things and they only they only really eat when, uh, some, when something's pretty much already kind of rotten, already putrid. So, no, basically, <laughs> no. Good, no, they're not. They're not. A, they're not a threat. They don't hunt. Um, they actually, interestingly, their uh, whilst their beaks are really, really strong, their feet aren't, and their legs aren't very strong. Mm-hmm. They're great for walking around, but they can't pick up and carry something away. <laughs> okay. So no one. Yeah, they can't carry anything away. My second question. Thanks for that. My second question Sorry. is: so there are other birds that fulfil the kind of scavenger, carry on, clean up crew in other areas of the world. Yeah. There have been examples in certain areas, specifically in the Northern Americas, where ravens have had a, I don't think the word is symbiotic, but they've had a relationship with bears and wolves in that the ravens will call the bears and the wolves to something and it makes it easier for the ravens to then feast themselves. So I was wondering, Mm -hmm. because obviously that, I, I think that does, that has historically happened in Europe two i think but i was just wondering anyway does the vulture have a similar similar relationship so obviously they would communicate with uh, other animals in the sense that when they're flying that's all right when they're flying around although they won't fly although they won't necessarily pick on something that's that's dying they can sort of and with uh, as we know with poachers they can indicate when something has died because they'll be there but it's mainly the fact that they will clear up after everything else, really. Yeah, so if a, if a lion's taken down something, they'll eat what they need. The vultures will come down and, and, and fill the rest. I think most most vultures sort of symbiosis is with other vultures. Yeah. Because yeah. they've because the bigger vultures will go will eat first. They'll take the bigger bits, and then the smaller ones will come in, and they'll get everything out of the crevices that the bigger vultures can't reach. Okay. Well, final <laughs> question, and then I'm gonna let yeah. you. That, that you go and, and let the cat in. Um, <laughs> you just, <laughs> yeah. you just at me. Okay, so uh, specifically for the ARC fans, because I want to ruin yeah. their, their fun. Oh dear. Can you hypothetically ride an Argentavis? I'm, I'm that might be a question. The, yeah, I'm, go, for, go for that, Gareth. I'm going to jump I'm in just... on that one. So for anyone who's unaware, Ark is a game where you run around with dinosaurs and try and sit on them um, and feed them berries to try and make them your friend. Uh, Argentavis was nowhere near as big as he is in that game. He's no. bordering on the size of the eagles that took Frodo and Sam home. Um, and even then, I don't think you could uh, sit on the back of one of those either. So uh, aerodynamically, no. 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 <laughs> don't one thing, I, one thing I do on know... About Argentavis, though, is that they are technically new world vultures. They're cathar- they're in Qatar yes. today, right? Well, <laughs> well, well the we need to get down, to the cat. We'll move on to our next segment, where we're going to be talking all about, well, some really interesting word. I'm going to go let the cat in. It's word of the week. Okay, well, welcome along to this week's word of the week. Um, with our brand new intro there. Um, so this week's word of the week is uh, is going to be slightly odd. It's one that doesn't have an exact word as such. It's phagia what? or phagic. Essentially, Basically you're cheating. I'm not cheating. It's one word that can be put onto the end of me- of multiple words. Um, to... That's a suffix. 
It's the suffix of that's, the week. It's the suffix of the week. All right, fine. You, oh, got, yeah, okay. you got yeah. me there. But it's it's a, there are many interesting words that are caused by this. So this particular suffix or word of the week um, is phagia or phagic. Uh, and this comes from uh, the Greek to eat or to devour. Um, there's about 50 different versions as to whether it's eat, devour, to ingest, basically to eat something. So there are lots of different uses, um, and we're going to go over a few of them. In fact, we're going to have a bit of fun with this. I have gone through uh, a couple of medical dictionaries, and there are some really interesting ones. Uh, I'm going to see what you two think as to whether you can um, whether you can pick out what these particular ones mean. Now, the obvious ones are things like coprophagia or coprophagia, um, which I'm assuming you two are both familiar with not because you carry it out yourselves but because you've worked with with well primates and we all know primates are quite happy to do this also lots of other animals are quite happy to do this um coprophagia is of course the consumption of poo shit. or shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's fine aaron it's <laughs> as you said it now it's um it's the Greek shit's out the back coprolite or uh, sorry copra meaning poo uh, or feces or shit, yes. <laughs> and essentially, uh, animals that do that, um, there's lots of different reasons why they do it. Um, but Fun to know. Well, it takes up, <laughs> takes up some, <laughs> I suppose, if you're having a real up, yeah. day. So, we'll go over some of these and see if you can uh, figure them out. We'll, uh, and then I'll reveal the results at the end. I'll have a tally as to who gets which uh, one right. So, here we go. Here's the first one. Hemophagia or hemophagic. Eat blood. Yeah, blood. Blood. Yeah, blood. That is correct. You both get a tick on that one. Yeah. Yeah, blood. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, that's animals that well eat or drink blood. Um, it depends as to how they do it, I suppose, because vampire bats are hemophagic, uh, hemophagic and uh, they sort of lap up blood off seals and other things. Here's an interesting one: pagophagic. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Is that something that eats money? <laughs> uh, it's not. Uh, it's, not it's also not the eating of pagans either. Oh, that was going to be my damn it. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> eating of the Norse. Eating of the Norse. <laughs> yeah, well, you're both wrong on that one. Strangely, oh. um, pagophagic or pagophagia is the craving to eat ice. It's okay. often associated with um, with anemia uh, and can result people who are really thirsty <laughs> and can result in uh, an iron deficiency. Um, it's also something that pregnant women can get as well. Uh, essentially, they can just get a craving to eat ice. Um, so uh, that's that's one all so far for you two. Omophagia. Here's your next one. Omophagia. Uh, oh, it's not. I, 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 I actually remember looking at this. Yeah, I think you yeah, did. I, um, yeah, I think we did look at this one, didn't it? I can't remember. It's uh, not eating the same thing. No, that. No. No. Yeah, is it eating the same thing? You're going to say eating the same like thing constantly. Eating the same thing constantly. Okay, Drew. Is that is it O M O? O M O, phagia. I don't know. Actually, eating, it's not what I've guessed, but I don't have a better guess. Eating, so I, I'm buzzing out. Uh, the, the only thing I can think of without missing off the H at the beginning is eating humans. Eating, yeah, fair enough. 
no. Um, well, technically, it could be if oh. if uh, Drew, you were to eat them raw. Okay. Overphagia is the eating oh, yeah. of raw yeah. uh, raw things. All right. Essentially, raw meat. Although I could also, I mean, I could also say I don't know whether it, vegetables or fruit would come under that as well because. But- but we don't win points off of technicalities. You don't win Bruce. points off technicalities, <laughs> so I'm afraid right. that's nil poire for you as well. I'm competitive, though. Yeah, so, <laughs> we go on to a nice easy one, I think, this one. Geophagia. Oh, uh, eating of rocks. Inorganic earth material. So you got... Oh, damn it, rocks. <laughs> so Aaron, what did you say? Play. He said inorganic said material. Inorganic, inorganic what... earth material. I, I'm going to say your technicality things come back to bite you on the bum there. <laughs> because it is, in fact, the eating of rocks or soils or minerals. So uh, that's a point there for Drew. Uh, now, dysphagia. Dis. Dis. Uh, Dis- dysphagia. Is that when someone insults you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eating diss tracks. <laughs> Eating diss tracks, and Aaron's going with being insulted. Strange. <laughs> Strangely enough, um, I can tell you that that's not the correct answers for either of those. Oh, really? <laughs> no. I'm so surprised. Dysphagia uh, is, in fact, the difficulty of swallowing. Um, it's... Well, just you, having real trouble being able to swallow anything down whatsoever. My, my second guess was going to be not eating anything at all. So is that... Well, obviously I can't get it now, but... No, because I'm afraid that, technicalities yeah, don't count. No, 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 yeah, no. <laughs> so we'll move on to our next one. Europhagia. Oh. Eating urine? Eating Europeans? Eating Europeans. Yeah, eat, <laughs> that, yeah that was, that was going to be... Uh... Eating them euros. No, eat, <laughs> eating, uh... How are you spelling euro? This is spelled U R O. Oh. Yeah, eat, eating urine, drinking urine, consuming urine. Yeah. You're going it's... for urine? I mean, can I also go to that as well? Because that seems. You, you can if you wish. Yeah. You can yeah. both have a nice glass of urine because you're both correct there on that Perfect. one. So you both get a point. So currently, we're. Uh, we're a little bit over halfway through, and the scores are um, three to two three, two, to Drew. Oh, so, okay. oh, I thought we were tied. I've not been No, no, no. Good game, Drew. Acuphagia. Now, this is an odd one as well. Eating something accurate. <laughs> <laughs> being really. I think, I think being accurate means it just has gone into your mouth, really, if you're trying to eat That's something. True. As long as you've swallowed it, it's it's then you've accurately obtained the food. Gareth, you, you are a father, as I am. You know that some individuals in society do not eat accurately. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, quite true. Acuphagia. I, I reckon, eating... like, eating something constantly. So just constant eating. Constant eating? Um, yeah. Aaron? Your guess on this one? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm going to go for something silly because I'm really lost on this one. I'm going to say eating acupuncture needles. Well, believe it oh. or not, oh, you're, that's actually, a... you're actually been... very correct because acuphagia is the eating of sharp objects. So if you were eating <laughs> acupuncture needles, uh, you would be very much I eating sharp that one objects. That's a technicality. Well done. Not... Oh, no, oh, I, you, don't know. You, I don't know, actually. You're not wanting... Okay, you're not wanting the point. That's fine. Oh, I want the point, but I don't think this is where honesty is getting you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've got uh, we've got three left. 
zoophagia. Well, I mean, uh, eating, eating any animal, yeah. Uh, specific... well, um, vertebrates. 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 Well, it is it is eating creatures, but it's eating live creatures. Uh, okay. So oh, that is when you decide to just start chewing on the side of a cow, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And we've then got xerophagia. Mm. Oh, uh, eating nothing. <laughs> it, but it's spelt with an X, isn't it's it? It's spelt with an X. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, I looked this up. Um, I looked this up earlier on. Xerophagia. I, I'm not, um, I, I don't know what zero would mean with an X, so... Uh, well, it's all it's all to play for at the moment. Drew is out in front, so uh, if you can pull a win, you've got this one and one final one left. I mean, can Aaron come back? I mean, I Aaron, I'm going to give this one to you because I'm going to just throw it and just say that it's the eating, <laughs> it's the eating of, uh, it's very specific. It's, it's, the, it's the eating of a teddy bear that needs washing. No, <laughs> I have a feeling you've just sparked something. In my mind, I have a feeling if I'm not right about it being eating nothing, it's eating something. It's definitely eating something. Dust, dusty, not dusty, um, not dirty, but it's not moist. Oh, but it's dry. Oh, nothing. It is in fact eating, eating dry food. I can't believe I lost that. Oh, yes. Either you were just stalling for time there whilst Googling. He <laughs> <It> probably was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, our final one, which is xylophagia. Eating wood. Eating wood? Yes. Are you that? Oh, he sounds quite confident. So it's almost like if I go for the same one. Uh, okay. I mean, well, I mean Aaron, Aaron seems confident, so... Uh... All right, let's let's make it fair, and I'll just say eating xylophones, <laughs> which I are made of wood, aren't to... they? <laughs> I really want it to be eating xylophones, but yeah. unfortunately, uh, it well, fortunately for Aaron, uh, yeah. it is in fact the eating of wood. Yeah, I remember that because I remember thinking xylophagy means eating wood. Well. So you remember that because that's a convincing story there. I'm not entirely convinced that he's not yeah. looking at. Google. I remember that because well, I remembered it. Because I remember reading, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, so "That's what xylo means in xylophone." It does, yeah. I guess it does mean it's made out of wood because well, they are, aren't they? Well, that means that Aaron, you have clinched it. You've taken it uh, four to three there, so you you've taken our phagia eating contest. Well done. Um, yeah. If you at home, well, I would have said play along at home and see uh, how well you did um, and let us know if you managed to, to beat Aaron's score there. Um, if you suffer from any of those conditions, I'm afraid there's absolutely nothing I can do for you because I'm not a doctor. Um, May I just offer my in- most enthusiastic contribulations to Drew for <laughs> your part? You can offer them. <laughs> he won't accept them. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, actually have, little... I actually have some for you, Gareth. See if you know what these are. Oh dear. Yes, oh dear indeed. Um, so I'll start you off on an easy one. Anthro- anthropophagy. 
Well, that's eating people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about cytophagy? Cytophagy. Oof. That would be something to do with cells, I'm guessing. Well, it would be eating, because it's got phagy in it. Yes. <laughs> eating cells, yes. Eating cells. Durophagy. Uh, eating a durex. <laughs> I was going to say durian, but yeah, okay, let's go with that. <laughs> it's eating hard-shelled or exoskeletal organisms. Ah. Um, and let's go with... See, when I when I did this earlier, I, I, made, a, I made a list of these things. <laughs> um, what about myrmecophagy? Eating mermaids. <laughs> no, I'm surprised you didn't get this one. Uh, the name Eating rings a bell. Termites. Ah, of course, yeah. And our friend from last week, the tongue-eating louse, is a mucophagy because it eats mucus. mucus. So today I've learned that if I want to insult someone in big words, <laughs> I just say. Oi, coprophagy and decease. Mm. Well, indeed. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how all the smart kids are insulting people. It around. is, yeah. But uh, that pretty much brings us to our phagic limit for uh, for this week. Um, and we will move on from our word of the week uh, into our emails. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, it's that time again where we delve into our mailbag. Uh, this week, we've got two questions. Um, one of them has come to us from an anonymous uh, on the internet. Um, and it reads, uh, because people are now more interested in space because of uh, the recent Mars rovers landing, can you guys tell me how many animals have been to space? So this is a long list. In fact, it's at least over 40 that we've all been able to collectively find because it doesn't yeah. look like there's any one specific list of animals and how many species. But there's at least over 40 that we've been able to find. Um, so the list itself includes, and this is just a few of them, tortoises, dogs, monkeys, uh, spiders, um, two different species at least, birds, which... Is just an incredibly yeah, just collective. <laughs> yeah. Mealworms, wine flies, guinea pigs, tardigrades, butterflies, bats, ants, scorpions, rice fish, carp, rats, mice, crickets, quails, killifish, beads, bees, uh, silkworms, nematodes, moths, hissing cockroaches, stick insects of some variety, uh, chicken embryos, possibly chickens themselves, jellyfish, brine shrimp, uh, toads, toadfish, and uh, that's where my list runs out. Have you got any others there, you two? I think you've got more than me, but I think I went into specifics. Like There was actually, at least yeah. three or four species of monkey, wasn't there? So, yeah. <laughs> you name it. We've and the, loads the, of species the, into space. The bat that we found, the bat that we found wasn't, I don't think specifically went up there. Or <laughs> it wasn't meant to go up there. It, it was clinging to the fuel tank. So... Whether it actually got to space, I'm not too sure. <laughs> They're not legally allowed. But apparently, it, apparently, it stayed on. Well, the one thing because uh, I got little thingy feet. The one thing I can tell you about the tortoises, or at least one of those tortoises, um, is it was the first animal to ever circumnavigate round the moon. Um, that was the Russians just before the Americans landed on the moon. They sent a tortoise around it. So, if you ask me, that's what makes tortoises much cooler. Nice. So, our second question that we've got. Aaron, I believe you've got that one. 
Yeah, so this is, again, this is an anonymous one. Um, and basically, in the hyper-unrealistic event that Thanos snapped his finger and all the carnivorous and herbivorous dinosaurs just instantaneously switched dietary habits, uh, what would happen? Um, and they would die, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, basically... Abject chaos. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of highly evolved animals that have evolved to do very specialized dietary things, not being able to do those specialized dietary things. You're basically talking about a raptor bird panda, and uh, we all know what pandas are like. Well, yeah. does that also mean that things that had become specialized in eating different diets, like therizinosaurs, which were carnivorous theropods that basically evolved to then eat um, vegetation. Does that mean they've gone back to being carnivorous theropods again? Roaming around yes. with their massive slashing claws. Because I yeah, think it's like, deja, be, it's like deja vu for them. It might be the only group of animals that really comes out on top. I would like out of this scenario, I would really love to see an Ankylosaurus <laughs> running after and trying to eat <laughs> some sort of uh, dromaeosaurid uh, raptor. <laughs> I'd love to see that. I don't think it's going to catch it. What happens to the omnivores? No. <laughs> do, they, do the omnivores just instantaneously become really fatty eaters? Yes. I think they just stay. They <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. eat everything anymore. I just like. No, I can. I literally can't eat anything. So essentially, I think what we've we've done here is mass, uh, completely massively messed up the natural world with yeah. these. Well, we wiped out the dinosaurs again. Well, yeah, but not just to the point of wiping out a, a selection of them. I also believe the avian dinosaurs would cark it as well because they no longer know what to eat. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then we don't have vultures anymore. So look what you've done. <laughs> we discussed this. Absolute craziness. <laughs> well, there, there is possibly the oddest question we've had. Uh, and Drew, you're, you're, you're to answer your question, but not on here at the moment. No, uh, no. Your so it's been from earlier collectively in the, decided. I've, I've, <laughs> yeah, it's been collectively decided that um, I will show you my diagram, my workings out of the question that Aaron posed me before of how many uh, how many louse could fit in a uh, in a gigantopithecus. And like with uh, any good maths problem, you've got to show your working out. Yeah, which I have done with pictures. Good, 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 good. Well, we're going to be releasing that as a as a video on the Facebook or the um, the Twitter page. So, uh, if you want to see Drew working out the incredibly uh, complex mathematical formula that is how many tongue eating mouse uh, it takes to uh, to fill up a Gigantopithecus, and that's not just feeding one that, but making yeah, it I, body mass. I, I don't want to anti like make it anticlimactic, but the maths was not that difficult at all. I'm sure it was. I mean, I, you know, Einstein himself would, uh, would, would struggle with this particular formula. You know, Laus equals Gigantopithecus squared. So, <laughs> yeah. So that brings us again to the end of this week's episode. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, and remember, you can get in touch with us either by email at thenathistorycovered uh, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, where hopefully Drew will be posting up his mathematical results uh -huh. uh, as soon as we possibly can. And if you liked uh, what you've heard, remember to leave us a review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. So a big thank you to my co-hosts. Big thank you to you, Drew. 
You're welcome. That's good. A big thank you to you, Aaron. The time of this yeah. week's podcast is over. Do oh, we dear. leave Earth to its fate? <laughs> For Christ's sake. <laughs> Do we let them stand alone? You, no, you, we'll be you back go next sit week. in your co- you go sit in your corner. Please go sit in your corner. Uh, and most importantly, a big thank you uh, to you guys uh, for listening. So we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. Bye.